and Colin Peacock is in the studio now. Good evening, Colin, with Midweek Media Watch. How good we get to do this in person. Indeed, indeed. I'm, and you know, I'm so glad you came down to Wellington. I hope you brought your coat. Uh, well, two coats, maybe from Auckland. I'm born and raised in Wellington. Okay. So, so just to use that as a preface for the fact that the plane was just really bumping around to land today. S- still would have been warm inside that plane, though. It was warm inside until <laughs> I came out, and I just went, ooh, Actually, yes. I must say, though, uh, great to hear you talking to Chris there, because uh, Chris Hyde, I spoke to him just a few days after um, Cyclone Gabriel hit. Uh, he just got his power back. Uh, I think some of the roads had just been restored, but he had two newsrooms in Hastings and Napier that he couldn't communicate with. He wrote quite movingly, actually, about being literally powerless uh, to actually do your job and how, how wretched it was. And um, he spoke really well, but um, he sounded awfully tired. And it's so funny hearing him say, I had to chuckle. I know that he doesn't mean it to be funny, but with his understatement there going, we've had a fair bit of news over the last couple of months in Hawks Bay. He certainly has. And uh, he's relatively new into the job of editing the paper too. So um, I was going to say a baptism of fire, but it's a baptism of flood water and politics Absolutely. and everything else that he's yeah. had to endure so uh, yeah yeah so um, but great to hear from him again because I haven't spoken to him since uh, that time when he was clearly uh, on his last legs stamina wise um, with what he would had to put up with. No definitely and just so it's I mean it's so important isn't it that our media are actually available to speak and to speak in the moment about the things that are happening albeit I, we can all appreciate that he'd prefer it just pause for a moment there <laughs> for in sure. Bay. Well, where shall we start? You want to start with a decision that means a rather expensive and important advert can't be seen on our screens anymore. Yes, uh, thanks to uh, the Advertising Standards Authority. That's the outfit that upholds uh, standards in advertising and considers complaints. Now, on every now and then they release a, a bunch of decisions after they've had a board meeting and uh, publish them uh, kind of in, on, in one uh, newsletter. And a bunch of these came out on Monday, and I usually look through the ones that it says have been upheld to see oh, which uh, which ones crossed the line. Is there a little news story in it? Um, and I thought I might be the only one that does this, but News Hub and uh, just today the spin-off have both done a story on uh, this particular um, pair of decisions that we're going to talk about. So uh, this is about uh, ads, a series of ads for the Department of Corrections. Uh, and the intention was to try and recruit new and urgently needed corrections officers. So um, there were three commercials in the series and a bunch of small ones, but the main ones were 45-second ads, uh, which are followed in the same commercial break by a little 15-second follow-up, um, where the characters in the ad kind of break the fourth wall, as they call it, and stare down the camera and talk to you. Um, so there was one that was played a lot. Uh, if people can put this in their minds. I'm sure a lot of people would have seen it over the recent weeks. Uh, there's a guy who's in a corrections officer's uniform. He's off duty and he's at a barbecue describing his job to um, another guy about how he changes the lives of, of the people and the inmates. And the guy running the barbecue is very impressed listening to this and just kind of sheepishly tells the prison officer when he works, oh, what's your job? He just goes, oh, oh I work in a bank, mate. <laughs> but does that Sound yeah, familiar I, I totally know which ad you're talking about. Is that one of the ads that's been banned? Not that one. It's interesting. Huh. So that one's okay. I thought it had a bit of a weird vibe, actually. The guy at the barbecue was a bit intense. But anyhow, uh, the ad in the series that has uh, been complained about is one that has a title on it called um, Your Dad's a Good Man. 
uh, but I think played almost as much as the previous one we just mentioned there. So a former prison officer and a child encounter, um, oh, sorry, a former prisoner, I should say, and his child uh, bump into an off-duty corrections officer in the car park at a sports field. And there's a kind of awkward, frosty interaction between the two. And the kid pipes up and says, uh, how do you two know each other? Um, and this is what the ad sounds like. Hey, John. How's life treating you? Good? Pretty good, yeah. How do you know my dad? Did you guys work together? Yeah, we worked together. We did a lot of work together. That was, you know, ages ago, before you came along. Your dad's a good man. You're a lucky kid. Mm, so fairly intense when you can't see what's happening there but there's a couple of quick flash flashbacks inside the ad uh, where one shows the, the prisoner there talking to Mike uh, clashing with that corrections officer and then that's, that's followed by a scene of where they're getting along quite well in a prison workshop so uh, ending their relationship I guess and then in the follow-up ad, the one at the end of the ad break, uh, where you see the characters again, uh, it features the boy, uh, so the former inmate's uh, child, uh, saying this directly to the camera. I already knew Dad had been to prison. Mum told me, and I know it's all thanks to him that Dad's got a good job now. And so, yeah, might become a corrections officer one day too. So, on the face of it, straightforward, what was the objection? Yeah, so the complaint was about perpetuating a negative racial stereotype. The former inmate uh, who's speaking there is uh, of Māori appearance. Um, and in the case of the bit you just heard there... Um, a complainant, the, the one with the, where the boy is speaking, his son, the complainant was concerned that the advert was offensive and ignored the system failure that led to the over-incarceration of Māori, uh, which I might have thought was a bit out of scope of the actual ad, which is effectively a recruitment campaign, but the majority of the Standards Authority's complaints board agreed that the portrayal of the Māori boy discussing his father's rehabilitation perpetuated uh, a stereotype and that was likely to be um, offensive uh, and harmful to some viewers. So there were three complaints also about the main ad, the first one we heard, the longer one, featuring uh, Mike, the corrections officer, and the former inmate. Um, and uh, those uh, were basically the, the objections were similar. And so has corrections explained how the ads were made, defended them? Yes, well, they did. And the ASA authority uh, decision references that. So it says that they thought the campaign was going to present a realistic portrayal of corrections roles. They acknowledged that casting a former prisoner as a Māori man could be perceived as uh, a negative stereotype, but they said we balanced this with the need to be authentic and have a positive message of rehabilitation. Um, they also say the concept was tested widely with internal staff and an external focus group, and casting was undertaken with the advice of uh, the ad agency's Māori cultural advisor. Diversity was a key factor. Uh, they cast a, a range of ethnicities in the ads, men and women too. Um, earlier today, the spin-off, when they looked at this issue, uh, they reported that the founder of a a creative consultancy called ERA, uh, name of Johnson Mackay, who's Māori, uh, had said it was a mistake to make the corrections officer European-looking and the inmate Māori-looking, although he points out, as quoted by the spin-off, that the corrections officer, who knows, he could be Māori, uh, the inmate could be Samoan, Greek, you know, who knows, but the perception of seeing the ad is that this is the, the, the message. And 
He also felt that the interaction between the father and son, with the corrections officer present, disrespected the inmate, emphasises conformity and not healing and rehabilitation. So he thought the ad's execution was wrong and there was a missed opportunity here and that um, the ads, in his words, weren't trusting Aotearoa to have a mature, open, honest communication and that the ads were insincere and inauthentic. Hmm. Okay, so what do the advertising rules actually say? Yeah, now that's interesting. So the key part here is uh, principle one in the authorities' code, social responsibility. It says adverts must not contain anything indecent, exploitative or degrading or likely to cause harm or serious widespread offence, give rise to hostility, contempt, abuse or ridicule. But there's actually also a specific guideline on stereotypes. It says they may be used in adverts, to simplify communication in relation relation to a product that's offered or the intended consumer, uh, but they must not feature stereotypical roles or characteristics which, and maybe this is the key part, through their content and context are likely to be harmful or offensive to people, uh, particularly children and young people. Right. So do ads get checked or approved before they go on TV? Almost always they do. In fact, almost all ads must be pre-approved by the authority itself, which is interesting, eh? Because these were approved huh. in November last year. Um, and in the decision, the ruling, they mentioned this. They said, this is a quote from the document, it said, at that time, nothing in particular puts these two commercials in breach of guidelines and standards. They are straightforward and low-key and fit the G classification. And then specifically it says on that uh, matter of stereotypes and social responsibility, uh, everything seems to be in order. Um, And look, the makers, uh, which is a company called Stanley Street, an established um, professional ad agency based in Auckland that has done work before, I think, for corrections. Uh, You know, when they put out a kind of press release, kind of puff piece really about these ads because they were quite proud of them. They said, look, we worked alongside a diverse and engaged group of stakeholders and the message needs to be authentic and confronting but compassionate. Uh, We want to change perceptions of the role corrections officers play and the improved outcomes they can create. Each story is unapologetically emotive, they say, informed by the real world experience of the cast uh, corrections officers and the people they work with. So they were really convinced that they'd created something quite authentic that fitted the bill and that they could be proud of. So how did the ASA's complaints board come to a different conclusion? Yeah, so part of this was, I think, uh, they said that when they considered the complaints about the ads, they had to consider the ads on their own individually and not in the context of the other ones that might have had a different ethnic mix or, you know, that wasn't a part of the whole production. They did note that with approximately 53% of the prison population being Māori, there is a valid reason on those grounds to cast a Māori actor to play the prisoner. That's not unreasonable. However, the majority of the board said the threshold for a harmful stereotype was triggered by casting a Pākehā man as the corrections officer and portraying this power imbalance. Um, So, for example, when the child in that second uh, shorter uh, ad said it's all thanks to him that my dad's got a good job now they say this is problematic and reinforced the white saviour racial stereotype and the board said that language uh, language diminished uh, the father's agency and the mahi he himself had undertaken to turn his life around and that added to that negative um, typecasting so uh, yeah it's, it's, it's tricky they also said that the the board said that the, the complaints board, this has said that stereotype wasn't actually required to convey the advertiser's message, which was about the merits of working in the corrections field. So, um, 
yeah, it's complicated. So what happens to those two ads now? Can they still be played at all, or what's the story? Well, the ruling is not in that form. Um, so oh. unless the advertiser appeals and it's turned over, but these ads have been running for a long time, so possibly they might have come near the end of their run as well. And as was pointed out, um, this is part of a bigger campaign, so there were three main television commercials with those um those uh, those those second part of the ads that run in the, in the second block. There's also online media, there's social media billboards and posters that that are fine. So it was it was pretty much the way those ads individually um, uh, were presented um, that uh, that are not okay to screen as they are. And of course, there was there's the expense of making them and of scheduling them on TV. Yeah, and until I looked into this, I didn't realise that this had actually been quite a big issue. So the ads were made last year for this very specific purpose. They were desperately short of corrections officers. They were even talking at one point about declaring an emergency and getting defence force staff in to fill gaps. It was that bad. So uh, the minister at the time authorised spending of uh, just under $4 million for this campaign, uh, most of which, about two-thirds of which would have been actually you know, on, the, on the airing and buying the airtime for the for the commercial, maybe about a third for the production. But a big job, certainly a big budget. Um, and at the time, TVNZ featured this as a news issue. Their political reporter, Mikey Sherman, uh, put... Uh, the Corrections Minister, Kelvin Davis, on the spot uh, like this for TBNZ One News. Are you personally surprised by that figure? No, I think that that's what the market is at uh, this stage. I think Four million dollars for a TV ad. But it, well, it's a series of ads as well as social media uh, stuff. We've been told that there's no money being able to be put aside to retain staff. There's no money able to be put aside to recruit staff. Yeah, and that, that last voice you heard there, by the way, was a representative from the uh, prison officers' union who was, uh, you know, worried about the amount they were spending that he thought could have gone on, you know, actual recruitment and paying the need, desperately needed prison officers. And do we know if the ads were effective, seeing as the campaign began months ago? Well, it seems as though they were, judging by this. So, again, this was in that same report uh, back in October when I guess those ads had already uh, were already running. This is um, Mikey Sherman uh, of TVNZ. Corrections say applications have gone from around a handful to around 20 each day. They have around 270 live applications at the moment. But the union warns it takes around three months to train a person before they're able uh, to begin work inside the wire. So we are still a way off yet in terms of filling those staffing shortage gaps. So it would seem then that the ads had generated interest, at least from applications. Uh, and just this is pure coincidence, but on Monday, uh, TVNZ's Benedict Collins uh, also returned to this issue. Uh, they'd done some OIA requests to find out how that had been going and reported back on what had happened uh, since then. Between October and February, Corrections received more than 3,000 job applications. After vetting, it's processing 800 of those, and it's already made formal offers to 250 people. 60 others have already started work as Corrections officers. Yeah, so the ads clearly seem to have had some sort of impact, but just a major coincidence or irony, I suppose, that in that same news report you had the Corrections National Commissioner telling One News you know, we're really pleased that campaign hit the right note. The very same day, the Advertising Standards Authority revealed that it had, in fact, um, upheld those complaints about one of the key ads because of, you know, negative stereotyping. So clearly not uh, the right note as they saw it. So 
I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? Because the the agency clearly tried and corrections themselves. They had, as they say, focus groups, uh, cultural advisors. You know, they thought they'd uh, done something hard hitting that was realistic and would fit the bill. Uh, and yet, um, the complainants and the uh, or the authority, when they looked at it, came to a different conclusion even than their own assessors did when they pre-approved the ads. Yes, and the whole thing happening over over a period of time, relatively significant in terms of months yeah, from yeah. beginning to where it's up to now. Yes, a long time. So a lot of people would have seen that ad, which they've complaints board now decided is a bit harmful. And uh, I mean, it's I, it is a fraud area. I suppose we had you know the police ten seven issue, which I, I mean we've talked about before on yes, Midweek Media Watch with Hayden. Um, that wasn't as a result of formal complaints, but with TVNZ uh, and FSL Collins, you know, raising it. And, police had kind of editorial control of the way that show was made uh, rather than the makers so a different mix but you know this area of portraying justice and ethnicity is really complicated and uh, if I was an ad agency or a program maker I'd be wondering gosh you know how can we be fair to all our audiences and do things the right way and be sure that uh, you know we're not going to cross a line whether uh, through carelessness or misjudging um, what experts and ordinary audiences are going to make of it. I guess the significance of this decision and also you mentioning Police 107 is that they do actually signal where the line is where people may not necessarily have realised it in yes, such that, clear terms. That's right? true, so even if you employ a focus group and advisor and so on, you might have to run that ad by uh, an audience, actually make it, screen it and say, well what do you think of that? Um, because clearly when the complaints board had another look you know, they saw it in a very different way when the complainant had highlighted uh, the concerns that uh, that uh, occurred to them. Yes, well, staying with ads, but on a slightly different note, uh, recent rulings on ad complaints weren't the only interesting thing released by the ASA lately. It's also published its annual summary of the advertising revenue going into the media. What's the result for 2022? Well, it's really interesting. So uh, it's up. $3.4 billion, which sounds like quite a lot across the whole industry. So it was $3.2 billion in 2021. That's 3.4 in the calendar year of 2022. So look, the, the relevance of that is, I mean, that's not a, an epic jump, but during and after COVID, there were big warnings, big fears that there would be a, a kind of slump, like the advertising would fall, economic activity, you know, advertising be a nice to have for businesses, and this lifeblood of commercial media would uh, maybe, you know, hit a new floor. So not a huge jump, certainly not a slump, and how have different media businesses fared? Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, because their costs are rising like everything else with the mm. inflation and so on. So that that uh, incremental leap, 3.2 to 3.4 billion, not enough to offset the costs that they'll, they'll be having. Businesses like NZME and MediaWorks had already made big cuts to jobs and some services uh, in the past warning that they didn't think their ad revenues were going to come back. But... You know, this data covers TV, newspapers, magazines, interactive media, radio, billboards, and even junk mail and cinema ads, which are quite a small part of the business, but across all of those mainstream media areas. And the stats show that the online advertising is really pulling away. So more than half of that $3.4 billion uh, is um, digital-only advertising, so online stuff. So TV still is over half a billion dollars, 517 million newspapers um, through their printed products, but also their own website and app uh, advertising. Um, 219 million and 119 million respectively so it's it's kind of holding up magazines still 117 million and another 36 for their uh, digital offerings that are specific to those um, even 
10 million bucks still being spent on cinema advertising. Um, so it's it's holding up in a way that some people just didn't think it would. So does this mean that media companies and the experts will stop warning about the shrinkage or even possible collapse of ad-funded media? I don't think they will. Uh, I mean, they will be heartened by this, I'm sure. But these days, you know, they're not considering themselves in competition with each other. Like TV3 and TVNZ aren't quite fight. They consider they're fighting against uh, Netflix and Facebook and just anything that could take away your eyeballs. So uh, they will still be saying um, that they'll still have to scrap for the advertisers that are out there. Um, but just today, for example, Sky announced it's cutting uh, 170-odd jobs. Um, they're going to outsource some of their staff. I mean, Sky isn't advertising-funded. It's mostly, um, anyway, it's, it's it's people's subscriptions. But, you know, these mega trends are still out there, and they will still be affecting these companies. So I don't think they'll uh, be considering that um, they're, you know, financially secure if they're depending on advertising. Right. Okay. Topic change. Last Sunday when Media Watch aired the uh, Posey Parker story, it was peaking. Uh, She wasn't here for very long, but the news about her visit, well, it goes on. Yes, uh, no shortage of uh, angles for the media to keep uh, running that story and the related um, uh, fallout from it, I guess. So we had all the arguments about which side was more aggressive at that protest on uh, Saturday, wasn't it, in Auckland and Albert Park. Then Parker's comments herself after leaving the country, dissing, dissing New Zealand in various ways, J.K. Rowling piling in on social media, Madam and Davidson, the incident with the motorcycle, and her comment after that about uh, cis white men and crime, um, other politicians' responses, of course. So part of it has been media figures also wanting to have their say. All of that's given it legs, so it's still going on now some so days after. Where do you want to begin? Well, you know, I don't want to comment on the whole controversy <laughs> and the culture war thing, which obviously looking at the feeds clock. into it. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking, yes, indeed. But the media aspects are relevant. So... Posey Parker herself, I think, interesting to note, as soon as she left the country, she said uh, online, um, there were lies spewed by politicians in Australia and New Zealand, boosted by a corrupt media populated by vile, dishonest, unskilled cult members. So not a nice description of media works. I don't really think that shows her operating in, in good faith there. And the thing is, that my feeling is that while a lot of people had a lot to say about what they've seen in the news media, by and large, the event itself that rally and what happened has been pretty much reported matter-of-factly. Um, you know, they said what they saw, they showed us the scenes. Reporting a protest, always hard to gauge it because you can never get an overview of what's literally happening. But um, it's just those who feel the media are biased or corrupt or want to spin the news one way or other, they'll see what they want to see and, and criticise the media accordingly. Exactly. I mean, one reason some people criticised the media and even, even partly blamed them for the chaotic scenes was that some broadcasters took sides last week and even urged people to join the protest. Yeah, what that, have they had to say? That's unusual, isn't it? You don't often see them going beyond just giving their own opinion on no. something. Um, so one of them was, as we heard in the program on Media Watch on Sunday, to, uh, Today FM's Tova O'Brien, and her colleague Lloyd Burr, they both urged listeners to take a stand. Um, they actually went to the rally together, um, as it turns out, in the weekend. And then on Monday, uh, Tova O'Brien was uh, still on the same page as what she'd said on Friday and actually hitting back at her critics. And to all of those people who are now rushing to their keyboards to tell me it's about women's rights, the same people, ironically, who have criticised me in the past for being too pro-women, too much of a feminist, but who have now suddenly become staunch defenders of women's rights. Yeah, so interesting there. What she didn't do was kind of acknowledge that Parker had been shut down in her 
who really was effectively overwhelmed by the counter-protest. Um, but she was pretty clear that she regarded the rally was, uh, you know, in her view, a pretty good and effective display of uh, righteousness, should we say. So no qualms about doubling down on what she'd said before uh, the protest uh, ended in that way. So what about her colleague, Lloyd Burr, who... D- he directly urged uh, listeners to attend the protest to oppose. Yeah, he, he said, see you there, 11 o'clock Albert Park, see you there. Um, but interestingly, he did address the, the way that um, Posey Park was uh, shut down and suffered that indignity of the um, tomato juice on the head uh, like this. It made the whole trans rights movement look just as intolerable as Posey. Just as intolerable as Posey. It makes them look just as petty and pathetic as Posey herself. And the sad thing is it's added fuel to the fire. It's lost the support and sympathy of many Kiwis who don't care what's between your legs or how you define yourself. And that's the real sad thing here. So there was plenty of commentary in the media along those lines, including from politicians regretting or condemning the fact that Parker hounded off the microphone and was not able to be hurt. Yeah, plenty of people saying that. That seemed to be a default position that, oh, you know, don't like her, what she had to say necessarily, but, you know, the fact that a, 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 a public event couldn't take place it was something they seemed to regret. And it was interesting, the first sort of talkback opportunity of this, I think, was about 3pm on Sunday, ZB's weekend collective show. So I had a listen. Um, and the host, um, Tim Beveridge, took an interesting approach. He just said, look, you've seen the scenes, you've heard the arguments, was it, in your view, what happened? Uh, her getting shut down, like, was it a good day or a bad day for New Zealand, was just the way he asked the question. And what did most people say? Well, most people just said it was bad. They just reacted badly to scenes that seemed chaotic and disordered that they would have seen either on social media or uh, on mainstream media news. Uh, a lot of them had the impression that the event was very violent or at the very least quite confrontational, um, you know, because they'd seen the flashpoints. Uh, it was also interesting that um, many people brought up the... Um, the Destiny Church rally. They'd seen those pictures in Altea Square of that separate event and the presence of um, of uh, Brian Tamaki and some of the others turning up at the Albert Park as well. They didn't like that. A lot of people raised that. Not many. I thought people might have voiced, you know, their actual tried to go to the you know the anti-trans or their fears or suspicions or whatever, express those sorts of sentiments or possibly just wider sort of anti-rainbow community things. But no, no one really did. And uh, but a lot of them. Interestingly, or several, I should say, callers within that hour really wanted to make the point that they thought the media had been captured by or was was at least sympathetic to bias towards the rainbow community and were literally in support of of trans rights. One of those who was criticising the media was another Today FM host, Rachel Smalley. Um, Before the event, she said no government MP should attend it because they would be speaking against women. Um, And she said... On Monday, when she was back on air, uh, look, we saw a remarkable bias in mainstream reporting, and she said she now feels a very lonely voice in the media. And then she said uh, she didn't think she would see any more uh, balanced reporting again this week, and uh, concluded by making this point about the media. I don't think we will see balanced reporting again this week. The mainstream media is, by default, young too young to really understand how hard fought women's rights have been. They've been born and raised in a world that many of us fought hard to change in the years that have gone by. They've benefited from those changes, but they haven't understood the struggle. Yes, now I'm the wrong person, gender-wise or age-wise, for a, a view on that necessarily, but I did raise it with a few people who thought, you know, that that, was, that would be 
they felt patronising, uh, and, and other people would see it that way. You know, it's possible that younger journalists today working in the media aren't unaware of struggles in the past or the fact that they've benefited from others. I mean, Rachel Smalley told a story about being a sports reporter, being denied opportunities, and being discriminated against, um, treated poorly, and that you know that was sad to hear. But I, you know, I, I have to say that those people I've put those comments to did not feel that that was a fair comment on, you know, uh, colleagues who have come after her um, in the media, but. Uh, yeah, she she also made other comments about the media, saying, "I want to see journalists calling out the intimidating behaviour they saw on on Saturday, and um, that uh, you know concerns about women feeling safe and occupying women-only spaces have to be talked about." And uh, she didn't think that um, the media were helping us uh, do their part in the in a, a well-functioning democracy, but. You know, those questions about bathroom safe space, they were canvassed by Kim Hill in interviews by Nick Trubridge of uh, News Hub, for example, um, just over the preceding day. So uh, I, I don't think those are issues that the media have completely ignored. Now, last weekend on Media Watch, you looked at the decision made the day before in the High Court, which effectively gave Parker the green light and led to the scenes we saw from Albert Park. Has that been re-examined? No, not not really. Um, maybe the, the people feel the decision stood of on in and of itself. But what what I thought wasn't widely reported, and I was a bit surprised, was how she came to be here in the first place. Like, why her? Why here on this issue? And you know, it turns out it's Australia's Conservative Political Action Conference flew Parker out from the UK uh, uh, to Australia, which meant she was able to make the journey over here. There was an interview I included a snippet in Media Watch on the weekend, but kind of buried it, where. Um, Last Friday, she told ABC Radio in Melbourne that, uh, oh, sorry, that this is Andrew Cooper, the head of that conservative political group that brought her out to Australia, that her visit had been a big success uh, in spite of the aggro in Melbourne um, because they got stuff aired in the media. And when he was asked why her views were important to him personally or to that conservative political action conference, this is what Andrew Cooper said. You know, there's a legitimate discussion to be had here and, uh, um, as I said before, as the father of two teenage daughters, having biological males in the bathrooms with them was a concern to me and it's a concern to many parents. And I think that's the conversation that you know we were hoping to stimulate and have uh, discussion around that. That doesn't mean sort of under the radar with the people that are in the media, people like yourself and I guess people like my, myself, but a lot of people don't know what the issues are. Yeah, so I find that interesting. So he raised himself, his own concern about this bathroom issue for his teenage daughters, and he felt that this was a legitimate area for wider public discussion. But even if you believe that, I mean, when it was put to him, like, this is someone from the fringe of these debates, Posey Parker. You brought her out, you know, put her at the centre, hoping that this would be aired in the media. Uh, but he just wouldn't accept that he, they'd selected someone from the edges of the debate, and he claimed to have not much knowledge of some of the extreme and provocative things she'd said outside of this area as well, and that she was definitely going to be provocative. So I don't think bringing her out from the UK had a whole lot to do with women's rights and had a bit more to do with that outfit's uh, conservative political concerns in Australia and their efforts to influence the media there. We've got just under a minute before the news at 11, but we've got time to say a new media columnist is in town. Yes, just very briefly, Shane Curry, many years as chief editor at the Herald and NZME. He's now the editor-at-large, so he's uh, shared a few responsibilities, kind of back on the tools. He's given himself a weekly column called The Media Insider. Uh, Some of his first effort was kind of puffing up NZME products a little bit, like Mike Hosking going off to the UK with Kate Hawkesby as partner and fellow broadcaster to uh, do the coronation of the king. And also just today, he's launched a new series, Lunch with a Mover and 
Byron Shaker. So lunch with Wayne Brown. You can hear all about um, Wayne Brown eating risotto in an upscale restaurant and wanting to move the ports of Auckland uh, at leisure with editor-at-large now, Shane Carey. Colin, a pleasure. Midweek Media Watch. There it is.